morning we continue our study of 1 Corinthians. Today we find ourselves in chapter 15. Uh, we're going to be focusing on, on verse, focusing on verses not 29 through 34. That's found on page 961 in the Bibles that are provided for you there in the rows. If you do not have your own copy of the Bible with you this morning. Uh, just a little update on, on where we are and where we'll be going over the next uh, couple of weeks. Obviously today I'll be taking us through verse 34 and then over the next two weeks uh, Wes Bunting's going to be finishing out uh, chapter 15 and then when uh, we return on, from vacation uh, in three weeks, we'll be gone for a week, but when, when I'm back in the pulpit in uh, three weeks then we'll finish up, Lord willing, the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, then we're going to have a special speaker and then we're going to begin the book of Jonah for our children who are going to be upstairs with us for the rest of the summer. So that's kind of the... The, the plan as it stands right now, just so you can be aware of that, if you want to start reading in Jonah at some point over the next few weeks, that'd be a good idea just to prepare yourself and uh, if you're a parent, also to prepare your children for what they're going to be learning about. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse Actually, you know what? Let's begin at verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. There was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be mis misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. 
For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beast at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Let us pray. Lord, I pray for your help, help both for me and for your dear people. Lord, that we would have ears to hear. Hearts to love you. Minds that comprehend and believe the truth. That in our lives, God would be all in all. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I imagine all of us can remember the first thing that we ever saved up for as a kid to buy for ourselves. First thing we bought with our own money. If you're young and haven't done that yet or haven't done anything big yet, then just sit tight. You will someday. But for me, it was a 12-speed bicycle, not a 10-speed. It's got to be a 12-speed. Get that right. It was... It was jet black, and it was beautiful. I remember the first day I saw it at the, at the bike shop there in Reedsville, North Carolina. I thought, I have got to have that bike. And my mother and I looked at the price tag, and I said, Mom, I really want this. And she says, well, great. You can save up and buy it. And I said, what? Buy it? Aren't you the mom? You're supposed to buy it for me, right? No, if you want this you need to buy it. And so I was like, okay, well, look at the price tag. This was uh, <clears throat> some years ago. And, um, you know, it would have been affordable by today's standards, but to a 12-year-old, that was a lot of money. I think it was about $150. And so I began 
to work and to save and anything that that, that I got I, I put it in my literal literal piggy bank and and would save and every few every few weeks I would pull it out and count and and it seemed to go on forever and and my birthday came and went and I got a little birthday money and I stuck it in there and, and I wanted to cut the grass so I cut the grass and and put that money in there and eventually the day came when I could buy the bike it was a glorious day it was a an exciting day and we went and picked it up and brought it home and and it probably wasn't long after I got home that I wrecked it for the first time but that bike represented uh, an important lesson in my life I, I began to early on appreciate the value of something now somebody else may have looked at that bicycle and thought you know what you can keep that. I want, I want to save for a car when I turn 16 or, or, or something else, maybe a game or, 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 or an article of clothing. But for me, that was the goal. And everything that I was willing to sacrifice, ice cream that I didn't buy when the ice cream truck came by or, 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 or other things I could have done with it. Everything that I did not do and, and everything that I did do in terms of, of looking for opportunities to earn money, every act, every moment reflected the value of that bike to me. That makes sense, right? You, you, you can all relate to something like that in your life. What we value, what matters to us, has a direct effect on how we live. It's plain and simple. You, you, you see where I'm going with this, do you not? That, that is certainly true as we look at the life of the Apostle Paul. Now, if you're visiting with us this morning, we are coming to the end of a rather long study of the book of 1 Corinthians. It is our practice here to work through entire books of the Bible, and, and you're coming in on the tail end of Paul's first letter in the Bible to the Corinthians. And, and if you've been with us all along, some of this is going to be review. Uh, if you're familiar with the Bible, this will be review, but the Corinthians were a pretty confused bunch of believers, pretty confused body of believers. There, there were problems within and without the church. You, you, you saw the influence of the culture in their practices. You, you had the influence of faulty teaching. You even had little factions that existed in the church. You had uh, erroneous views of marriage and sexual intimacy. You name it, and there were problems that dealt with it most likely in Corinth. And as we've worked through this glorious letter, Paul has patiently and with great wisdom pastorally dealt with each one of these issues, being faithful to, to, to remind the church of who they are in Christ. And, and honestly, the obligation of love that they have to one another as a church. In chapter 15, Paul addresses 
a significant false teaching which had crept into the church. I'm going to share more on that in, in just a few moments. But, but that's why we have this entire chapter devoted to the gospel and the resurrection of Christ and, and how that ties also to our future resurrection at the return of Christ, the resurrection bodily of believers. You see, a teaching that had come in and began to threaten the church in such a way that, that, that it threatened to, to really make them no longer the church at all if they allowed themselves to be led astray. And so Paul writes decisively to, 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 to both correct the faulty views, but also to, to, to lovingly yet powerfully con confront the Corinthians in their sins. And that's what we find here this morning. And, and here in, in verses 29 through 34, Paul actually points to himself and the example of others who have sacrificed for Christ as a reflection of the value of the gospel. You see, the gospel is just not a message to make us feel good. It's not something that God has given us to, to, to be able to pick and choose aspects of the gospel that we like while ignoring the rest. For the Corinthians, it was the issue of, of the resurrection of believers. That they would have affirmed point by point everything that we agree about the gospel in terms of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. But it was the implications of the gospel that they were getting wrong. And Paul says, no! No, you, you, you leave that, these implications of what the gospel accomplishes... You leave that and it will not be long before you're leaving these other essential truths. And so although we would all affirm, and, and if you're visiting with us this morning, we affirm the future bodily resurrection of the saints at the return of Christ. That, 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 that's not a, a, a point that we debate on around here, but there are other gospel issues that, that, that the church is facing at this time that we need to be on guard against. And so the principles that apply here are essential. The gospel is valuable. Being reconciled to God through faith in Christ who died for us and rose again at the proof that, as, as the proof that we are reconciled to God for we've been declared righteous in His sight. That is valuable. That is the most valuable thing that you could ever believe in this life because the implications of it changes everything. It is a truth, and, and the implications of that truth are truths that must be defended. And Paul's life was spent both proclaiming and defending that truth. And so I pray this morning, brothers and sisters, as we dive into these verses, that we will do so with a level of sobriety that Paul calls us to as followers of Christ, that we would recognize that the world's values cannot be our values. The world's view of the gospel cannot be our view of the gospel. The world's view of eternity cannot be our view of eternity. 
and the world's approaches to, to addressing the problems that we have in this world ultimately do not answer the greatest problem which only the gospel answers. So, so listen soberly this morning. Listen joyfully this morning as we are reminded yet again of the security that we have in Christ and, and what is to come. But listen as those who are ready to be transformed by the truth of God's word. This morning we're going to tackle this passage under two headings, the first of which is the cost of defending the truth, verses 29 through 32. Paul writes, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beast at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now again, context, Paul is addressing the erroneous view of some within the church who did not believe that there would be a bodily resurrection for Christians at the return of Christ. I read verses 1 through 34 to, to give you context. In, in verses 1 through 11, Paul sets forth the evidence that proves that Jesus himself rose from the dead. The, the gospel is true and is of first importance. The, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus are essential facts on which our faith is founded. To, to deny any one of them is to deny them all. The, the resurrection validates every aspect of Jesus' ministry and is the, the proof that, that, that his sacrifice satisfied God's requirements to make us righteous in his sight. Paul pointed out that literally hundreds of people encountered Jesus after his resurrection. They were eyewitnesses to what God had done. In verses 12 through 19, the Apostle Paul links Christ's resurrection to our future resurrection so closely that to deny one is to deny the other. So he says, Corinthians, you cannot deny the bodily resurrection of the saints because to do so is to deny the resurrection of Jesus. And then he begins to, to make an argument from a negative perspective by, by highlighting the consequences if Jesus did not rise from the dead. If, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, our faith is of no value. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, our sins are not forgiven. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, the, the Bible cannot be trusted. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we will face God's wrath when we die, and so on. Christianity without the resurrection of Jesus is a waste of time. Then in verses 20 through 28, Paul transitions from the hypothetical negative to the glorious realities of, of the gospel and a resurrected Lord. Since Jesus rose from the dead, our bodies will indeed be raised when Christ returns. Since Jesus rose from the dead, the whole world will be brought under his rule and reign. No enemy will be able to stand before him. Since Jesus rose from the dead, even death will be defeated. There is a day that is coming when death will be no more. Praise God. And his glory will be on full display eternally. And we will experience it fully as we worship him in glory. So, so Paul has, has established pretty clearly that Christ has indeed risen and that someday so also shall believers be raised from the dead, right? I mean, that's 
pretty strong argument he's made so far. And, and here in verses 29 through 34, Paul continues his argument by emphasizing the value of the gospel as it's revealed in what he and others have endured in preaching the gospel in a lost world. Faith in Jesus has real life implications. The, the reality of sins forgiven and being restored to God gives us new life, brothers and sisters. It changes us and it changes our priorities and our perspective on this life as, as well as the life to come. And, and this really is illustrated perfectly in baptism, is it not, brothers and sisters? We are united with Jesus in his death where he bore God's wrath for our sins we, into the water. And then out again, we are raised again with him in victory to new life. And in verse 29, Paul references this in one of the most confusing verses in the New Testament. Hopefully it won't be as confusing in just a few moments. Paul writes, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead if the dead are not raised at all? Why are people baptized on their behalf? Baptized on behalf of the dead? What on earth is Paul talking about? What does he mean by that phrase? Now, as you can imagine, there have been a number of theories that have been set forth over the years and, and even certain cults that have arisen because of a misapplication of verse 29. So, some have taught that to be baptized by proxy in the place of a dead non-believer would lead to the salvation of their souls. Can you imagine that? I'm going to be baptized on behalf of my, my great aunt Susie, who was a God-hater, who, I didn't really have an aunt Susie, by the way, this is hypothetical, who, who died. But, but because I'm going to be baptized in her place, and somehow her soul is going to be transferred from hell to heaven. It's not taught in the Bible, right? There's nothing even close to that as we read scriptures. But some have gone there. Another view is that in Corinth, new believers were not baptized right away. Once someone came to faith in Christ, they were put on spiritual probation for a determined number of time. And at the end of that time, then they would be baptized. But if there were some that died in that probationary period, then maybe Paul's talking about people just being baptized in honor of that person who died before they had the chance to be baptized. Well, that doesn't hold a lot of water if you read the rest of the New Testament, particularly the book of Acts. When people got saved, they tend to do what? Right away, they got Baptized. So this idea of a probationary period, I'm uh, not, not quite there yet. Now, it sounds nice, but there's got to be a better way. And, and as usual, I, I think the best answer is found in the immediate context of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, I mentioned the false teaching that was beginning to infiltrate the church. That was something that was called dualism. That was the Greek philosophy and dualism basically taught that if it was physical, if it was matter, then it was evil. But if it was spiritual, then it was good. I'm going to turn the fans on because it's hot in here. So physical bad, spirit good. And this was creeping into the church. This is why people 
people were embracing the idea that God surely would not raise from the dead our bodies, it'll stop, would not raise from the dead our bodies because they're evil. Why, why would God bring something back that was bad? And, and, and so Paul is, is writing to say, listen, you're missing the point. It's not just that God raises from the dead his people, but they're raised in glory. They're, they're not of the same essence as they were. When they died, they're no longer stained by sin. So I, I think what Paul is doing is, is making a point like this. If the dead are not raised, then, then why would you be baptized since you're going to die? That phrase, on behalf of the dead. Remember what it represents. We're buried with Christ and we're raised to a new life. Think about the Lord's Supper, which Paul has already written to the church about and corrected their practice on. We proclaim the Lord's death, what? Until he comes. So saying, listen, if you, if you... Why would you be baptized if you don't believe in the resurrection? Another way to think about it, if the, if the dead are not raised, why have you believed a message given to you about Jesus who died, who died and was not raised, preached by men who have died or will die and not be raised? So, so, so Paul is, is calling into question about this baptism on behalf of the dead in terms to say, listen, why are you embracing a message of resurrection if you don't believe that a resurrection is going to take place? Does that make sense? If you look at the context, you, you, you can back it up again uh, all the way back up to verse 19 where Paul says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. He's making the point that Christianity without a resurrection is a waste of time because as we discussed two weeks ago, it's a whole lot more fun to sin than it is to be righteous. And so Paul is basically, he's coming back to that argument again and he, he does it again in verse 32 where he says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So I think that statement, this baptism of the dead is, is really a clumsy translation of, of, into English of what Paul is trying to describe, this idea that a, a resurrectionless Christianity is a waste of time. Why, why be baptized if there's no rising from the dead? Does that make sense? So, 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 so think about that. Again, this is something that, that, that there's disagreement on, but I think when we have questions, the safe bet is to always go to the context. So in other words, if, if Christianity is only for this life, then we should be living it up now because there is nothing afterwards for us. Paul's point is that Christianity without eternal life, including the bodily, bodily resurrection, is pointless. Again, take it back to baptism. Why engage in an act that signifies an eternal union and a new resurrection if you don't believe it? Yeah, that was the hard part of the passage. Everything else is, is pretty clear, I think. 
If you look at Paul's reasoning in verses 30 through 32, it remains the same. It's the same argument he's been making. If there is no resurrection of the dead, no eternal life, why would he and others endure all that they did to take the gospel to the lost? Verse 30, Paul writes, Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, if there's nothing beyond this life, why am I risking my life, Paul asks. Every day his life was in danger. He suffered and was persecuted throughout his ministry up until the day he died. In verse 32, Paul references fighting the beasts at Ephesus. Now, there's confusion as to whether Paul is literally talking about at some point being thrown to the the wild beasts in Ephesus, or if it's a reference to the riot that we read about in Acts chapter 19 where Demetrius the silversmith caused the people to riot because the preaching of the gospel was bringing about new converts. They were rejecting the idol worship in Ephesus. And, And whether Paul was literally thrown to the lions or some other wild animal or if he's referencing the riot his point is the same why go through all the trouble and the danger if there is no resurrection if the gospel is not true which again leads to his conclusion much like in verse 19 if the dead are not raised let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die if the gospel isn't true brothers and sisters let's let's party now because there's nothing more to live for than the pleasures that we receive in this life. We might as well live like unbelievers because sin is easier than obedience. It's more fun in the short term. Now, if it sounds like Paul is coming on strong, he is. You'll see this more clearly in verses 33 and 34. But before we get there, I want to get a little personal with you this morning, especially on a day which we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper. Now, I mentioned earlier that Paul's life and ministry were a clear testimony of how he valued the gospel and really loved the Lord. Now, over the past three years, we've we've had the opportunity to learn about other figures from church history whose lives also reflected how valuable the gospel and the Lord was to them. We learned about Martin and Katie Luther who, who lived under constant threat with Martin living in exile for a season. We learned about John Huss, who was killed for taking a stand for the the truth and and the authority of God's word. We we learned about John Wycliffe, who who endured illnesses. Charles and Susanna Spurgeon, they dealt with illness and the pain of being rejected by their own denomination. We, We learned about Adoniram Judson, who lost a wife and three children on the mission field. And these are only a few But each life serves as a reminder of the value of the gospel and the importance of the truth. These men and women were just like you and I. They were just like you and I. They faced temptations. They faced doubt. They were beset with weaknesses and sin. But ultimately they believed and that faith enabled them to cling to God during their darkest hours. Now, it is likely that that none of us will ever have a crazy pastor doing a a character study about our lives, but but even still, 
our lives reflect the value of the gospel and of God to those who know us. Faith in Jesus is not just for this life only, but it is definitely for this life. So before we move on, may I encourage you this morning to to do some evaluating today. Reflect on the sincerity of your faith, the the focus of your faith this morning. I want to encourage you to, 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 to make sure that you are trusting only, fully, completely in what Christ has done for you. It's not Jesus plus your best efforts or your acts of kindness. Certainly not Jesus plus your church attendance. It is faith in Christ alone. He lived a life that you could never live. He perfectly fulfilled the will of God. He never sinned, but yet he died on the cross, not just where he dealt with the abuse of man, but more importantly, he bore the wrath of God for every sin that you would ever commit, past, present, future, in order to reconcile you to God forever, to restore you to God. It is faith in what he has done that saves us. But true faith changes us, brothers and sisters. Changes our priorities. Changes our perspective. Even on the trials that we face in this life. In Christ, we we recognize that that, that our, our deepest sorrows and our greatest joys in this life both are minuscule compared to the great glory that we will experience when we look on him with our eyes. Serves to to, to propel us to, to, to want to live in a way that brings him honor and glory in this life. There there may never be a person doing a character study on us, but there is a God who sees all and knows all, and he is pleased with our efforts at telling others about his greatness and his love. And his is the opinion that matters, dear ones. The truth of the gospel is a truth that must be defended, but it is also a truth for which there are consequences if it is ignored. Verses 33 and 34. Paul continues, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Now these verses serve as both a warning and a rebuke to those in Corinth who had been deceived by the false views of the dualist. The the warning in verse 33 is actually a quote from a Greek poet and and should be understood as a warning against the deception of false teaching. That Greek word that's translated company in verse 33 is homilea, which means associations, but, but, but should also be understood to be as a reference to what is spoken. We get the word homily or homiletic from it. 
And this really fits within the context of chapter 15 since Paul is, is dealing with false teaching in the church. Bad company, as in what they teach, ruins good morals. And the message is clear. It was, it was time for the Corinthians to deal decisively with anyone promoting dualism within the church. It was corrupting the church and needed to be dealt with. And brothers and sisters, things have not changed when it comes to false doctrine. It corrupts the church no matter how nicely it's packaged. And this is happening all around us, dear ones. And because we live in such a connected world, technology speak, techno technologically speaking, we see it happening in real time with every tweet, every quote, every Facebook post, every blog and podcast. People promoting views and ideas within Christendom that are outside of the realm of what we would call sound teaching. And through it all, Paul's warning should echo in our ears, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. But, but, but I like this teacher, he or she makes me feel good, they, they tell good stories. Well that's nice, did you know he denies the Trinity? Did you know she promotes a false gospel? Did you know he blasphemes the Holy Spirit? Did you know she rejects entire chapters of the epistles? Well, that's okay. I don't believe everything that he or she teaches. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Listen to Paul's wording in verse 34. He makes it clear that to continue to continue associating with the, with the dualist, especially now that he's de dealt decisively with the question of the resurrection, was to, was to continue in sin. Those are strong words. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Now, when someone is physically drunk, their perspective is skewed and they lose a measure of control of themselves. We all have witnessed drunken people. Some of us have been drunken people. And typically, if we're honest, the only person who enjoys the company of a drunk is another drunk. Those who are clear-headed don't find the drunk to be nearly as amusing as he or she thinks themselves to be. No, the sober person sees things as they are, and, and the drunkard sees things through a stupor that is induced by alcohol. Let me ask you a question. Which would you want to drive your children home from school? The sober person, obviously. Paul likens those influenced by false teaching to drunkards because their intoxication by the false teaching had caused them to lose sight of reality. Specifically, the reality of the gospel. This stupor was not something to be slept off, but to be immediately repented of. And Paul says clearly, wake up! Stop sinning! Reject this teaching because some of you, you don't even know God and in spite of the truth that you have received. 
These, these things are not to be trifled with. And Paul's dealing with the, with the dualists sort of as a, as a crystal clear reminder for us to be on guard and to be biblically focused as we navigate the landscape of Christianity in our day and age. Lifeway's going out of business, but whatever replaces it, just because it's on the bookshelf in a Christian bookstore does not make it sound doctrine. And the way to tell the difference is for us to be so biblical in our understanding that we recognize the fake. Brothers and sisters, to, to ignore the truth that's been revealed to us is to, is to elevate ourselves above the Bible's authority and even above God himself. And this is a place where none of us ought to be. It's a strong warning from the Apostle Paul. It's a strong warning not just to the Corinthians, but, but to every Christian, every church that has existed and will exist until the return of Christ. The truth matters. Perhaps you're still at point one and you're evaluating your faith this morning and you're, 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 you're looking at your life and you recognize, you know what, I, I, I know I believe, but as I look at how things are, are fleshing out in my life, I see a breakdown between what I, I know is true and, and how I'm living. Well, I want to remind you this morning of the gospel. First and foremost, it's because of what Christ has done that we can have confidence before God. Our assurance is not found in our ability to obey, but our assurance is found in the one who was faithful for us. But that does not mean that, that we should not reprioritize and rethink how we look at this life. There is grace. We're going to celebrate that grace in just a few moments. But how we live matters. What we feed ourselves matters. And we must be a people grounded in the truth. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth. I thank you for these dear brothers and sisters. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, I just pray, Lord, that your spirit would move mightily among us, Lord, that we would, we would celebrate the forgiveness and the reconciliation and the, and the mercy that we've received through you, Jesus, in a way that, that, that increases our faith and our joy in you. Lord, for those of us like myself who, who need to do hard work and, 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 to, and to recognize uh, steps of repentance that need to be taken, Lord, help us to do so in your grace, recognizing that we aren't working to earn your love or your acceptance, but Lord, we are living in it as we seek to honor you with our lives. Lord, I thank you for this day. In Jesus' name, amen.